certainly. It's my timer. First Timothy. I have uh, once again um, uh, determined to lose weight. Uh, this never-ending battle. It, it, Tim, is it okay if I share? Yeah, yeah. Okay. When, when I when I ask you publicly, how can you say? Yeah, that's true. Good point. It's interesting. Last at last. Uh, Fellowship meal. Uh, Tim um, works with. He's a uh, counselor. What, 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 therapist, counselor. What do you? What yeah. do you prefer? Okay, all of the above. With o- opioid addicts, and um, he, we, we were talking about that, and, and he said something that really struck me in, in a new way. Uh, not that I was. Not that I was never compassionate for. Addicts, especially, you know, something like that. But um, he, he said, it was really interesting. He said, you know, he asked me, he said, have you ever gone on a diet? How many times have you gone on a diet? And eventually you go off. And you go back on again and you go off. He said, that's very much of what they, they same kind of thing they face. The only difference is every time they go off, the impact on them is, is, is excruciating. Um, we all want to be healthy, right? We want to be healthy. And, and here's, here's what's interesting. We all want to just take a pill, right? N- not an opioid, but we want to take a pill. We're, we're a drug culture. Just take a pill and, and then I'll be healthy. But the bottom line is if you want to be healthy, there's two things you have to do. And we all know them. What are they? Eat right and exercise. That's it. Eat right and exercise, and to whatever extent you can do that will probably be the extent of your health, notwithstanding any other, obviously, health issues that, that you may have. The same is true spiritually. And, and Paul, in, in, in chapter 4, instructs Timothy in how the church is to remain healthy. Um, and there's no shortcuts there's no magic spiritual pill, but just as in the physical realm, it's eating right and exercise. This is exactly the two things that Paul tells Timothy to convey, not only to convey him personally as a, as a minister, but really indirectly to the church. Uh, so we want to look at eating right and exercise. Uh, look with me now at chapter 4, verse 1. Now, the Spirit expressly or explicitly or clearly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and by prayer. If you were to read through this entire chapter, you'll see that there are four times that the phrase, these things, is mentioned. The first one is in verse 6. It says, if you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. 
Look with me at verse 11. Command and teach these things. Verse 15. Practice these things. And then the fourth place in verse 16. Persist in these things. Now, these four phrases are, they, they, they are conclusions of what went before. So, really, verse 6 is referring back to verses 1 through 5. Look with me again at verse 6. The five verses we just read really should have been introduced with, if you put these things, what things, verses 1 through 5 before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained or nourished in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. He he, he says uh, to Timothy, if you... If you put these things that, that I just said before your church and before this church, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus. And then how does he describe this good minister? One who is nourished in the words of the faith. Nourished is, is in the present tense. What is present tense? What does a present tense verb indicate? Ongoing continual action. It's been a while since we've talked about grammar, isn't it? Uh, Ongoing, continual action. You you will be a good minister of of Christ Jesus, nourished, constantly being nourished in the words of the faith. Eating right. It started with Timothy. Timothy, you've got to eat right if you're going to be a good minister of the church. You have to eat right if they're going to eat right. You have to serve them good food. Constantly nourished in the words of the faith. The the definite article is important. There there is content to our faith. And, And this content we call doctrine. So as we constantly nourish ourselves as we as we eat right and what does it mean to eat right we eat the words of the faith again i i I always seem like it's like every sermon is exactly the same but but it really is it's all over in scripture how do we eat right as christians we're constantly nourished by the words of the faith which is in fact the scriptures the bible and he says, of the good doctrine that you have followed. Now, followed is what we call a perfect tense, which means that it was, it was a one-time event that happened in the past that has, is a, that has produced a continuing state of affairs and results. So I take this to mean that at the point of his conversion, that good doctrine that he heard, that he followed... That, that he made a choice to follow. And now he constantly nourishes himself. He was constantly nourishing himself with the word of God, with the words of the faith. He was eating right. And he was, Paul was encouraging him to continue to eat right. And the reason why this was important is if we look at verses 1 through 5, he says there are going to, there are going to be people who don't eat good, don't eat right. Look again at verse 1. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. They're going to eat bad food. 
And we need to unpack this a little bit. Um, the Spirit explicitly or clearly says we don't, that, that probably was only to Paul um, as an apostle. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that we can take that as an expectation that he's, the Spirit's going to explicitly or clearly say anything to us. But certainly to Paul, he clearly made, uh, well, he made clear that in later times some will depart from the faith. Now, some of our translations in our, that, that add a paragraph title will say probably great apostasy. The great apostasy. In fact, many point to this text as uh, what's going to happen at the end times, at the, the second coming of Christ, this, this mass great apostasy. In order to form that conclusion, you really, you really aren't reading the text. Let's read the text again. The Spirit expressly says that in later times, a vast number will depart. A great number uh, uh, will exodus. What does it say? Some. Some will depart. Not all, not most, not many. Some. And in fact, the phrase later times, that word later is what we call a hapax legomenon. You want to write this down, Ruth? Hapax legomenon. Um, which means that this is the only place this word is found in the New Testament. So what many interpreters do, they say, well, the, the later times here is this is the last days. And last days means the end of the world. And so this is this great apostasy. These, as I've always said, you have to, we have to be very cautious when we have words that this is the only place they're found in the New Testament. Because how, how, what's one of the ways we determine word meanings? One is with, starts with C, rhymes with ontext, context. The semantic range of the word. In other words, what are the options? How is this word used elsewhere? What, what are some of the, what's this we call the semantic range? But, but when we, it's the only place that's found in the New Testament. The only thing we can rely on is extra biblical literature, Greek literature in this case. And in, and in this case, doesn't shed any really light on this. So we, be careful about connecting dots that don't have connections. Yeah, it fits well to say, well, this is the last days. This is right before Jesus comes. There's going to be this great apostasy, this great falling away from the faith. And that's just not what the text says. He's saying to the church at Ephesus that, that in later times, whatever those later times are, we do notice certainly it would include them. Uh, m- many, if not most, have suggested that these would, would this be the the time from the, the time that Jesus came to to the end. Um, I don't know. I don't think that we can draw any real fast conclusions simply because it's the only place this word is found. And so, simply to buy fiat to say this means last days, there's no exegetical justification to do that. Is my point. And that's really not, it's really not the, the, the emphasis anyway. He says, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So there's three D's here I want us to look at. Of bad food. Bad eating. One is departure. Two is deception. And three is doctrine, particularly false doctrine. Departure, deception, and doctrine. And they almost always go together, it seems. When you have departure, he says it's usually because of deception and doctrine of demons. 
And when you have deception, you will inevitably have false doctrine and departure. And conversely, in, in the same way, when you have bad doctrine, you're going to have deception and ultimate departure. The, Deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Doctrine of demons. That is what we call a... Doctrines of demons is what we call a genitive. What does it mean, doctrine of demons? Is it doctrine characterized by demons? Is it doctrine about demons? Or is it, is it doctrine that comes from demons? In, in light of the context, I think that's what he's talking about. It, that this deception, that this, this spiritual deception that some will depart from the faith because of this spiritual deception by listening to doctrines and through teachings of demons, because verse 2 leads me to believe that, that this is the doctrines that come from demons, and it comes through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. In other words, this bad food is being served by false teachers, but the real source behind the false teachers are, in fact, demonic spirits. We, ha- we, we have to recognize that, that, that false doctrine is not just factually in error. That there is a there is a spirit behind them. There's a spirit behind these false doctrines. Now I'm not talking about when we disagree over the mode of baptism. I'm talking about false doctrine, where where the essentials and clearly taught doctrines of the Scripture are either ignored or they are twisted. In fact, if you turn to First John. 1 John chapter 4. He says, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And so, again, a lot of people stop there and they say this is some kind of spiritual gift where we have to discern you know, the spirit of gluttony or the spirit of greed or, or, or all these individual spirits. I'm trying to discern these spirits. But verse, the end of... But the end of verse 1 describes who these spirits are. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So he's, in other words, he's saying it's through these false prophets, it's through the false teachers, but there's a spirit behind it. And Paul says to, to Timothy that they are deceitful spirits. That, that is deception. I, I think probably one of the, the, the most common schemes, it seems to me, of the devil is deceit. Deceitfulness. I mean, Eve was what? Deceived. And how was she deceived? With a lie. Yeah, through, it was through demons and bad doctrine. What did Satan say? Surely God didn't. He questioning the word of God. So Paul starts off by telling Timothy, listen, Timothy, in order for this body to be healthy, it's going to have to eat good food and understand, though, that there are going to be some who will depart from this. Um, 
and they're going to be eating bad food. They're going to be eating food that is deceitful, that, that, is, that is false. And this is going to come through the insincerity, the hypocrisy of liars. Now, when's the last time you heard that kind of language talked in, in our day and age when it refers to false teachers? We're, we're a little squeamish, <laughs> it seems, to use descriptions like this. But, but Paul had no qualms by saying the hypocrisy of these liars whose consciences are... I can't say conscience. Conscience. Their consciences are seared. The, the image here is a, is a burn on the skin. What happens when you burn the skin? It, it, and when it heals, it, there's no nerve. You can't, you can't feel it. It burns. It's seared all the nerves. And they were teaching a couple things. Now, if, if we were to stop there, what might you anticipate Paul, said, Paul indicating that they were teaching? For me, it would be like, yeah, yeah, Jesus is not God. Uh, so, you know, you have to be a good person to get to heaven. Um, you know, name it, claim it. You can be wealthy. And I, I would expect some kind of teaching like that after, after these words. Deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And look what they were teaching. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. That doesn't seem to me to rise to the level of demonic deception. Now, it's wrong. How, how are we to deal with that? Here's, here's, let me make a suggestion. It seems as though that deception and bad doctrine doesn't have to necessarily be hmm, egregious in, in the sense of Jesus is not God or anything like that. Any time, though, that we say, thus saith the Lord, and the Lord did not thus saith, deceitful. It's deceitful. It's bad doctrine. It's, it's false doctrine. When did God ever say these things? If, if, for instance, uh, who, did God ever forbid marriage? No, quite the opposite. <laughs> What about eating foods? Did he ever forbid eating foods? Later on in the law, the ceremonially, they were, they were to, to uh, separate themselves from certain kinds of foods. But we know that that was a type of Christ. That was a type of Christ and separation. We are no longer bound by those. But Genesis 9-3, after the flood, what did God say to them? You can eat anything you want. Before, it was just, before the flood, all they were vegetarians. Isn't that interesting? You look at because there was no what before before the flood. There was no death. They were all vegetarians. After the flood, he says to Noah, "Now, now you can have bacon for breakfast." What's that? Yeah, let <laughs> yeah don't don't kill them right away. <laughs> Good point, Dan. Let's stay with the vegetables for a while until we. So I think I think the interpretation of this is well, a false teacher is not forbidding me to be married, so he's okay. No, no, that's what they were facing. I think the principle is any time we we anyone says in essence, thus saith the Lord, and the Lord did not thus saith Michael. Uh, 
Dangerous ground. Dangerous ground. And then again, these verses that he in fact says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Beginning in verse 7, if we were to read down from 7 to verse 10, verse 11 introduces those verses. Because look at verse 11. Command and teach these things. What things? The things that just went before. So we'll, we'll read verse 11. He says now to Timothy, not just put these things before the brothers. In other words, what things that, that some will depart from the faith because of de- de- deception and, and, and false doctrine. Now I want you to command and teach these things. Verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we, we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now he says, I want you to exercise. Look again at verse 7. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, exercise. Gymnazo. This is where we get the word gymnasium. I want you to train yourself. I want you to exercise yourself for what? Godliness. The eating right is the words of the faith. The exercising is training yourself for godliness. This is, in fact, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. If you turn to 1 Corinthians 9. Verse 24. Do you not know that in in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He's, in fact, talking about self-control. I discipline myself to control myself. I train myself to control myself. And in fact, he says, train yourself for godliness. And he says, well, bodily training is of some value. So, you know, walk, bike, treadmill, uh, exercise, because we need to exercise to be healthy as much as we can. It's just walking. And he says, there's some value in that. So by all means, walk. But... Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. My physical health is really taken care of in the life to come. I don't have to. I don't have to stay in shape in order to be able to run, you know, a, a mile in heaven. God's going to take care of that for me. Not the running a mile thing, but my body. But I need to train myself for godliness because it holds value for the present life. What's, what's the value of godliness in the present life? What, what, would that, what would that possibly be? Godliness. 
abundant life. You see, we think that godliness is simply a means by which we please the Father, and it is. But to the extent that we live a godly life will be the extent that we experience abundant life. It doesn't mean that a life free from pain and, you know, I get up out of bed and, you know, my back. It doesn't mean that. But it means an abundant spiritual life. I can, om- I can almost, with, without a doubt, I know this is merely anecdotal, but when people are struggling in their lives, without a doubt, it's because they're not eating right and they're not exercising. When they're having relationship problems, nine times out of ten, it's because they're not eating right, they're not exercising. When I stand up here with my ab, it's because I'm not eating right and I'm not exercising. And he says, godliness holds value for this life, abundant life, a life of spiritual fruitfulness. And in fact, he says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He says this earlier in chapter one, saying, take this to heart. Take that truth to heart. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Now I debated how, how, much, how much of the lid of this can I want to open. Um, what does this phrase mean? Who is the Savior of all men, all people, especially of those who believe? We have two groups. A main group and a subgroup. The first group is what? All people. Uh, one of the things over the last oh five to ten years that I've been doing is reevaluating re- how much of what I believed was based on what I've been taught as opposed to what's actually there in the text. Uh, as most of you know, for, for most of my adult life, I have what, what you call a five-point Calvinist. And I know some of you... Uh, and, that, and, and all along, I, uh, those of you who don't know, it's the tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. And uh, I always felt a little comfortable with limited atonement, but not because of the way, not for the reason why most were troubled by limited atonement. Most people are, are, are troubled by limited atonement from an emotional standpoint, not an exegetical standpoint. Most are troubled by limited atonement, the doctrine of, or the teaching of limited atonement, from a um, maybe a relational standpoint, or or they, they are offended by it rather than from an exit. It causes theological tension or personal tension, and therefore I reject it. So while I have changed my views on the atonement. It is not because I find it necessarily objectionable. If I felt that the, the scriptures really taught what limited, what, t- what historically they say about limited atonement, I would gladly embrace it. But I, always, I was always troubled with it because, and this is one of the verses that troubled me. He is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And, and my five point brother, so, so I'm not a four pointer. I, I call myself a four point five er. I just don't know how else to say it. I'm not a four-pointer in the sense that I do believe that there was a specific intent in the atonement to save the elect. 
But I disagree now with my five-point brothers because I believe that the extent of the atonement was, in fact, every single man, woman, child was atoned for. And we can revisit this later on. This is the, can, the lid is now off the can. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, he did what? He atoned for our sins. Now, most of the reformed, the five-pointers, say he, he atoned only for the sins of the elect. Were they saved at that point? No. Atonement does not save you. Christ's atonement did not save you. It was necessary for you to be saved. Christ had to atone for your sins because I've, I've often heard it argued, well, that we have to make this, we have to massage this verse. All kinds of people, especially those. But the subset of the all is those who believe. When were, when were you redeemed? When Jesus died on the cross, were you you redeemed? Yes. When when was every single man, woman, child reconciled to God? At the cross? In one sense, yes. But when are we saved? When we believe. I've never become more convinced that what we're talking about is application. Ephesians 2.1 said, Even the elect at one point were sons of wrath, but they were elect. So how can someone be both elect and still be a son of wrath if Jesus paid for their sin? All I'm suggesting is this text indicates that in fact, he did pay for the sin of every single person, but in the case of the non-elect, it will never be applied to them because they will never believe. We can revisit this now that you're thoroughly uh, concerned about me. Um, I think clearly the text says he's the savior of all people. I was willing. I was willing to sacrifice theological tension. For the sake of. I can live with myself exegetically. And I say that about all my positions now. Eschatology. I'd rather deal with theological tension and feel like I've I've properly divided the word of truth than to save myself theological tension. He's the savior of all people. And and there are several verses that that were problem passages and never felt right about how we handled them. And you may disagree. All I'm saying to you is I can now live with any theological tension I may to some kind of what I've been taught in the past, I, I can deal with that theological tension as long as I feel as though I've properly exegeted the passage. And, and again, I, I know what you're doing because I did it for years. Well, maybe this means that and maybe Savior is a potential Savior. Potentially he was the Savior. It doesn't say potential. So, now, now I'm going to try to put the lid back on. Can you put the lid back on for just a second? He says, come in and teach these things. And then our next section is verse 15. Practice these things. What things? Verses 12 through 14. So practice these things. So now he said, put these things before the brothers. Command and teach these things. Now he's saying, practice these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Stop there. 
how do we influence others? Um, one way is by teaching. We can teach. We can influence others by teaching. In fact, Paul is going to say to Timothy over and over again, teach, 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 teach. But it's not just position, it's progress. He says we also influence by example. And, and here's, here's one of the... Mm, what's, the word I'm trying, what, what's the word I should use? Here's one of the downfalls in, in the local evangelical church, particularly as it applies to pastors and, and elders and leaders. When you have a church of 1,000, 1,500, 5,000, 10,000, when does the congregation ever see the pastor live? Live his life. How does he live his life? Um, you see, Timothy was with the church, and they could see him live. And Paul says, you need to, be, you need to lead and influence by example. Uh, many of you have seen uh, my, my wife treat me unkindly. And how graciously I responded to that. <laughs> No, seriously, you've seen me snip at her. You've heard me say things maybe I shouldn't have said. Uh, This is is me. And I'm growing. I'm in progress, though. He's saying in speech, in conduct. uh, Where where am I? Uh, Twelve. In speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Set them an example through progress. <laughs> the, 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 you can influence and you can, we, can, we can influence others through teaching them, through saying them, but our children. We can influence our children through training them properly and through teaching them properly. But the best influence is what? Leading by example. I know a lot of, a lot of people left the church because of the dichotomy between these two things. People didn't practice what they preached. Now, sometimes that's just a cop-out. Go to another church where they do then. <laughs> you know, I don't understand this. I, I leave the church altogether because of hypocrisy. Well, maybe that church was just hypocritical. Go to another one. I, it's a problem. Nevertheless, he says, it's not about position, Timothy. It's about progress. Set them an example until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. So he's not saying just by example. He's saying continually. And why would read, Why is this reading, by the way, public is not in the text, the original text. But this is, this is what was meant. Why would public reading be so necessary? Think through. Thank you. No one had Bibles. They maybe had a couple letters from Paul. Maybe in some congregations might have had a Torah, a few scrolls. But Timothy, when, he, when the church in Ephesus met, he didn't say, turn to my book, uh, open up the letter that Paul sent to me. And, no, he, he would have to read it. They would have to read it. In fact, Revelation 1, he says, whoever reads the words of this book. Do you know that historically, I read this the other day, one of the things that, that, that Augustine, one of the many things that Augustine did in terms of groundbreaking was that he read aloud, or, or he read to himself. Do you know that in the early, uh, early church, 
reading to yourself what they'd say, what are you doing? In fact, that's they, they, the story is they Augustine was reading and they walked. Someone walked in and said, what are you doing? Are you talking to your what? Reading to yourself that people you just didn't do that. You always read out loud, and certainly in the congregation you would read out loud. Just continue to read out loud. Continue to read public pub, scripture publicly, to exhort and to teach. And then he said, "Do not neglect verse fourteen. Do not de- neglect the gift you have, which is given you by prophecy in the council of elders who laid their hands on you." He says, um, "Again, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your position. They'll see that you've arrived." They'll see that you've got it handled. No, they'll see your what? Your progress. Spiritual health is not about arriving. It's about progressing. If, if I want to lose weight, I don't go run 8,000 miles and you, you just drop it all at once. It doesn't work that way. It's what? It's progressive. As I eat right, as I exercise... Gradually, my health improves. Same with same with our spiritual health. As we eat right, as we exercise ourselves for godliness, eventually, gradually, we become more spiritually healthy. It's not about position; it's about progress. And then he closes by saying, "Keep a close watch on yourself in the teaching." Uh, this is something that a lot of pastors have neglected. They, they can cross all the T's and dot all their I's, and then they have an affair. And they fall. For a lot of different reasons. He says, it's, it's not about just having right doctrine, it's important. It says, what's your life? What, how are you living your life? I, I, in terms of that, I have always been very uh, conscious of where I go, uh, who I'm with, how I touch, uh, all these kinds of things. Watch your life. Watch what you read. Watch what you... Be careful about who and what you listen to. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persist in these things. And here's the conclusion. For by doing so, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Two things, I think, um, that I'm going to call us to do. I want you to evaluate your diet. Evaluate what are you eating. Um, and I know that now, now I'm supposed to say, read your Bibles. Um, no, but what do we feed on? Uh, do, do we feed on Fox News? Do we feed on... Not that there's anything wrong with Fox News. I'm not saying that these are necessarily bad things. I'm saying, what is our regular diet? Is our regular diet arguments is what our culture's doing and the repressive measures? And and I'm not saying that we shouldn't. But I'm saying, is that the is that your main diet, or or is are the words of the faith your main diet? What are you eating? Evaluate what you eat. That's the first step to lose weight. So you need to write down what you've eaten. Right? You know, uh, I had six hot dogs and a bag of chips and 
We, we, you have to find out what you've been doing. What, you have to track your, your diet. What are you eating? Uh, spiritually, what do you eat? What's the bulk of your diet? Um, is it magazines, books? Nothing wrong with those things. But are, how much of it is the words of the faith? How much of your nourishment is coming from the Word of God as opposed to sugar uh, and other places? Okay, number two, develop an exercise regimen. You know, it's amazing to me. People spend hundreds of thousands of dollars for a personal trainer and to get on a specific regimen, training regimen, you know. And there are people who won't, boy, they won't miss a workout. They won't. And you know what? You can't. You shouldn't. Because that one time where I go, man, I just don't feel like riding today. Or I just don't feel like walking today. I just don't feel like going to the gym today. That'll be the, that'll be the point that you do what? You stop going. I've seen it happen in the church over this last year. I miss one Sunday, two Sunday, three Sunday. It just, it just, it's, it's hard to get back in. It's hard to get back in the routine. It's, it's a regimen. And let me say this. When it comes to eating, good food, poorly delivered, is always better than bad food, excellently delivered. A lot of people don't go to church because they, they're bored. The, 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 his, his sermons bore me. Uh, they don't read their Bible because the Bible bores them. I don't get anything out of it. I'd rather have the Twinkie than the asparagus. Evaluate what you eat. Develop an exercise regimen. And what's the goal? The goal is chapter, or verse 7, for godliness. Train and exercise yourself for godliness. Am I a more godly person today than I was a year ago? Do I? Uh, we, we track our weight. Am, am I am I a lighter man <laughs> than I was a year ago? Well, in fairness to me, I'm not gained that much. Um, which is kind of scary, right? I was born this way. But funny story. No, I won't. Filter just kicked in. I'm not going to share that story. Um, are, are you think back? Not yesterday. Not 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 short. But over the, over the last year. Are, however, you want to measure it by the scripture. Are you are you are you more godly today than you were a year ago, or two years ago, or three years ago? We weigh ourselves based on our weight. Do we ever weigh ourselves spiritually? Where am I? Am I spiritually healthy? I may have big muscles, like Sal, like Larry. I, I, I should have mentioned their names. They do have big muscles, but I shouldn't mention. Am, am I am I am I spiritually fit? Am I progressing in my spiritual fitness? And to the extent that each one of us as individuals do that, will be the extent that our church, our church collectively experiences spiritual health. Am I saying stop running? No. Am I saying stop disciplining yourself physical, physically? No, because Paul says there is some value in that. 
I'm going to live as long as I possibly can with ex- to a degree. I don't want to live to be 120 or whatever. But you know what I'm saying? I, I, I don't want to necessarily neglect my physical health. There's some value in that. I, I, I don't suffer physically as much as I would if I didn't take care of myself. So, But I, I'm just suggesting that Paul is saying to Timothy, listen, Timothy, I, I want the church to be healthy. They need to eat right. They need to be nourished on the words of the faith. They need to exercise themselves for godliness. They, they need to progress in their godliness and grow in their godliness. Because that has benefit not just for this life, but in the life to come in terms of the honor and glory of Christ. So I'm calling on us this week. Let's become more spiritually fit. Let's come up with an exercise regimen, whether it's a regular reading of Scripture. Maybe you want to start praying again. And prayer has usually is the one thing that goes. Uh, whatever the case may be, the same way you would come up with a physical regimen, come up with a spiritual regimen. And it's going to take discipline. Paul says, I have to discipline myself. I have to, and a discipline, new disciplines are hard. Let's start eating right. Let's keep eating right. And let's keep exercising ourselves for godliness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, providing for us everything we need for life and godliness. Through your great and precious promises. Through the, the presence and indwelling of your Holy Spirit. That, Lord, we don't have to go run it out on our own effort. Um, But I know that you desire more than we do, that we would become more and more progressively spiritually healthy. Father, thank you for the words of the faith that lead us, that guide us, that are your very words. We don't have to try to hear an inner voice. Uh, We have everything that you wanted us to hear, you've given to us in your word. So we thank you, and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand and join hands?